I love being here, and I, I purposely um, scheduled this as my last. I've, I've been, I've been, I was in three weeks in uh, South Africa. We went to seven different places in three weeks, and then I was in uh, Australia for three weeks, and now I'm here. I, I purposely made this my last stop because this is a place I can come, and and I don't have to manufacture energy um, because th there's a natural energy that that is around the place anyway, and so it makes it easier. Um, on me, I really appreciate your church. I think I think your church is a church of strength, and it's a church of energy. And uh, and the, more than anything, I think that the the feeling. Now, take this, okay? Take this for what it's worth. As someone who travels the world and is in different places every week, when you're in different places every week, you can gauge certain things. And so. As someone who travels the world and is in a different place every week, um, this is this is one of the most loving places that I've ever been to, in terms of the environment that people would feel when they come in. And so that's a big testimony to you. So what I'm going to share, what I, I I had it in my heart to share something with you today, and um, and I spent some time preparing it. Um, my last days in, in Brisbane, and then um, you know looking at it. This is the first time I would have shared this. So. Um, give me some some sort of creative leeway here because I'm still working some of this out too, but um, but I felt to share something with you because um, the environment of this church is so precious and it's so particular and it's so unique that it's up to you to maintain it. Yeah. And so what I want to talk to you about today is, is the state of your heart. Mm -hmm. It's the state of your heart. I, I entitled the talk State of the Heart Leadership. Um, every year someone does a State of the Union address, uh, the President of the United States does a State of the Union address, and it's very important at that point to get his perspective on where things are. And so I want to talk to you about how important it is to, on a regular basis, everything we're going to talk about today is not a one-time decision where you go to an altar, you get prayed for, uh, you get delivered from something. It, it's not a one-time decision. It's something that I think we'll find that we have to deal with on a regular basis. Because the tendency, the tendency with European Christian is, is when they hear a, something like this, they ask themselves the question, well, which one am I? Like, for instance, the parable of the sower. Jesus says, okay, uh, if people's hearts are like this. When, when someone scatters the seed of God's word, it either falls on good ground or stony ground or thorny ground or hard ground. And so the tendency is to say, well, which one are we? Which one are we? And the answer is yes. The answer is, you're all of them, depending on the topic, okay, and depending on where you are, and, and depending on what kind of pressure you're feeling. Pressure does things to people. Pressure does things to people that, that other times, it would, that stuff comes out, and, 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 it, and it, it's inappropriate, listen, it's inappropriate to judge anybody's heart based on how they're acting under pressure, just like, just like you wouldn't want someone to judge your heart in one moment of, of you lose your mind, right? So, so with that in mind, I, I, want, to, I want us to, to investigate some things here. This is the scripture from Matthew chapter 15, verse 17 through 20. This is Jesus, he's speaking to a group. And what the context of this scripture is, is, um, okay, let me give you the context of the scripture first. So the context of the scripture is, is the Pharisees are, um, they're having a moment with Jesus where they're being very critical. And, and, and if you've ever been a communicator, you understand how frustrating this is. Every now and then, it doesn't happen often, but every now and then, I'll get done with a meeting, and you've worked hard with the, the emotion it takes to really do a meeting well. 
You work hard to do it. And after the meeting, some self-appointed church prophet who is the guy in charge of whatever's true and whatever's an error in the church um, comes up with his Bible open wanting to tell you why everything you said was wrong. And uh, that's very annoying. It's, it's very, very annoying. Because what he's saying is he's right and everybody else is wrong. And anyway, so it's a testing grace. So anyway, so... So, so they're, they're coming in and they're doing this, and it's, it's like a rapid fire sort of thing. Finally, they run out of things to criticize them for, and this is what they say. Jesus, don't you notice that your disciples, they don't even wash their hands before they eat? And Jesus, it's like he's at the end of the, the road with, with this. Like, if, if, if you're going to criticize that. Now, as a communicator, this is so important, as a communicator, when you're communicating with a group of people, the most important thing is your starting point. You have to back up until you have some kind of common ground. So in this passage of Scripture, Jesus has tried to go this way, and they were critical. Then he tried to go that way, and they were critical. Then he tried to go this way, and they were critical. Jesus continually backs up until he can find some common ground. And once you can find some common ground and says, okay, can we at least agree on this? then you can go forward. That's communication 101. You have to start with something everybody's on the same page with and then move somebody somewhere that, that way. So this was the common ground. This is what he says. Don't you see that whatever enters your mouth goes into your stomach and then eventually out of the body? So Jesus backs up until the point where he says, okay, you guys aren't agreeing with anything, so let's try this. When you eat, it goes into your stomach and then you eventually have a bowel movement. That's a, that is a, that is, you don't get much more base than that. Like, can you imagine being a Pharisee, you're trying to criticize anything, so finally Jesus backs up and goes, okay, when you eat something, it goes into your stomach, and eventually you have a bowel movement. The Pharisees have been like, well, you can't really argue with that, can you? Right? So now he's finally got his common ground, and then this is what he says. Okay, so, so we do agree on that. Eat, stomach, bowel movement. It's all connected. Okay. Then he says, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For it is out of the heart that comes evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are the things that make a man unclean. And so he's wrecking their entire idea of unclean and clean. They, they had created an incredible system to define people as unclean or clean. They, they had this, this, this massively complicated system. There were 613 rules in Leviticus, 613 commands to live the best life. And it had nothing to do with salvation. It had nothing to do with forgiveness. All you had to do to be forgiven was put your faith in a lamb on Yom Kippur. So, so in the Old Testament, they were saved by grace through faith. In their faith in a lamb. In the New Testament, we're saved by grace through faith in the sacrifice of a lamb. No difference. In Leviticus, there were 613 commands to live the best life. The word Torah doesn't mean law. It just means um, God's teachings and instructions for the best way to live. And so, and so there were 613 commands, but that wasn't hard enough. There's something in people that wants to make God harder to live with. So they made 3,000 more rules on top of the 613. Now, now, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Because in the Old Testament, if you, broke, if you broke the Torah, what did you have to do? You had to bring a sacrifice. 
and it had to be a spotless sacrifice. Well, if you didn't have a bunch of spotless lambs hanging around and you needed a sacrifice, where would you get it? Conveniently, you could buy it from them. So isn't it convenient that the people you could buy the lambs from actually made it harder to keep so that you would need more lambs? Now, why would they do that? So that they could make money. They were, making, they were getting wealthy on religious guilt. We would never do that, would we? So, so, hey, so, so what they, so what, what they did is, is then they said, well, because of our rules, we've never murdered somebody, we've never committed adultery, we've never done this, so they set themselves up as something bigger. So Jesus shows up and wrecks their entire concept of clean and unclean. He says, he, he shows up and goes, you're impressed with yourself because you've never murdered somebody? Well, that's not very impressive. How many people actually murder people? Not very many. I'm, I'm going to ask you, do you hate people? Is it in your heart? You're impressed you've never committed adultery? Well, whoop-de-doo. I mean, how many people could say, I've never committed adultery? A lot. My question is, is what's coming out of your heart? Do you, do you lust? Jesus wrecked everything. I mean, he shows up. He even wrecked their ideas of salvation. Right? So it's like, I'll give you an example. There's this one time. There's a paralyzed guy that gets lowered in from the roof of a house. And this is, now listen, I was raised Pentecostal. I was discipled Baptist. I went to a Presbyterian Reformed seminary. And I've been mentored by a Pentecostal rabbi for eight years. And it, I'm telling you, this story doesn't fit any system of theology I've ever heard. But it's right there in the Bible. It's in red letters. It says that a paralyzed guy got lowered in from the roof of the house. And it says, and, G, and this is what it says, And Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. Yeah. And Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. Now, can you imagine the reaction of the crowd? You can't call him forgiven. What did he need to be forgiven? He needs a lamb. He needs to take the lamb to the temple. He needs to talk about his sins to the priest. The priest needs to offer the lamb as a sacrifice for his sins. Everybody knows that's the only way to be forgiven. Everybody knows that. Jesus goes, no, 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 there's something else going on in his heart. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. And he was wrecking their concepts of salvation. And he was wrecking their money-making schemes. Yeah. And he started to make everything about the heart. Now this has huge, this has huge implications for leaders. The first implication is this, is that the condition of your heart will determine the atmosphere of your leadership. The condition of your heart always determines the atmosphere of your leadership. Now, let, me, let me give you an example of what I mean. You can always say the right thing, but you can almost never hide the tone of which you say it. I'll say it this way. You can be right, but be wrong at the top of your voice. Yeah. This, this is true if you're having relational conflict. Um, you, you know, uh, married, married, those of you who are married, you guys understand what I'm talking about. You, you love someone with all your heart, but there's still conflict. And so, and so in that conflict, there's times where you can be right. But, but everybody in this room, whether you're married, single, whatever, everybody in this room has had relational conflict where their side was right, but actually they were wrong because of their tone. That in being right, they were actually wrong. Um, here's another thing you can't hide. Intensity. Intensity. The, 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 the true test of ministry in the first century was something called the disposition of Messiah. The disposition of Messiah. The disposition of Messiah was found in Exodus 34, 6. 
He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness. So, so that when someone's heart is right, concepts and principles that someone knows almost never changes. The tone and the intensity of which it's communicated is what changes. So, so when your heart is, is doing well, the tone and the intensity of your leadership is a disposition of Messiah tone. When your heart is not doing so well, it changes the environment of which you lead. Okay? So that's, that's number one. Number two, the condition of your heart will shape the environment in which you lead. So the first thing, the condition of your heart will, will, will determine the atmosphere of your leadership. The second thing follows on, that will eventually shape the environment in which you lead. Unhealthy leaders create unhealthy environments. Unhealthy leaders create unhealthy environments. Unhealthy environments are taxing and draining. Because unhealthy environments eventually fill up with unhealthy people. Because unhealthy people are comfortable in unhealthy environments. It is normal to them. In an unhealthy environment, all healthy people either get unhealthy or they leave. In, a, in, a, in an unhealthy environment, all, all healthy people either leave or become unhealthy. Creating healthy environments is the key to drawing healthy people. Okay? The condition of your heart will eventually be the factor that draws the moral and ethical environments around what we're doing. It'll draw the values around what we're doing. It'll actually determine who's going to be comfortable around you. Who's going to be comfortable? Listen, if you're surrounded by nutcases, um, there, there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said about being compassionate and, and wanting to help people. But if you are surrounded by them all the time, it might be saying something about you. If you look around and go, well, just everybody, every, everybody around me has got a problem. Um, the problem actually might be you. It actually might be you. So, so Jesus is talking about how important it is to guard our heart. Now, there, there are, I wrote down there are, I just put four leading causes of heart disease. Four leading causes of heart disease. And, and once again, when you listen to these, your tendency is going to be, well, which one of these am I? And I would say, yes, it depends. It depends. The first type is, is um, guilt. Guilt. Now, guilt, if someone is struggling with guilt, something in secret, okay? When someone is struggling with guilt, you will notice this in their leadership. Because underlying guilt is simply this. It's an attitude that says... I owe you. I owe you. I owe you. The, let me give you some traits of a guilty leader. First, the guilty leader finds it difficult to trust other people. A guilty leader finds it difficult to trust other people. Why? Because in themselves, they don't trust themselves. They know that they're not acting trustworthy, so therefore no one else is acting trustworthy, so they can't trust anybody. They find it difficult to, to, to trust. Number two, the guilty leader builds walls instead of community. Why? Because you need something to protect your secrets. So they build walls instead of community. Number three, the guilty leader comes across distant and distracted. Distant and distracted. Now once again, okay. once again, your tendency here is going to be 
two things. Which one of these am I? And the other tendency is going to be, wow, I hope such and so is listening right now. Right? And, and I would encourage you not to take that. I, I would encourage you to, to actually sort of step out and, and investigate yourself. The guilty leader comes across distant and distracted. Number four, the guilty leader often overreacts to people who share their weakness. So what I mean by that is, is listen, if you, ever, if, if you ever see a preacher on TV who is focusing very hard on one particular sin, I promise you somewhere deep in their heart they struggle with it. You always preach your weakness. Always. I preach my weakness. You guys have heard me enough. What, what would you think my weakness would be? And, I, and, I'll, and I'll be just open with you. My weakness is, is that, that legalistic sort of um, wondering if God likes me because I've done bad things sort of thing. I, I grew up old school Pentecostal. In old school Pentecostalism, if you sinned, God left. You had to get re-saved. You lost your salvation every time you sinned. My granny got saved five times a day. She did. Five times a day. And here was a woman. Here's a woman who never cut her hair in her whole life. She died at 90. And on her deathbed, on her death, she just died back in August. And on her deathbed, she was worried that they might have to rush her into surgery and cut her hair. Why? Because her pastor told her, if you cut your hair, you're offending God and you're endangering yourself of hell. So here's a woman who'd never cut her hair in her whole life. She'd never worn makeup in her whole life. Never worn jewelry in her whole life. Never wore slacks in her whole life. Never went to a movie in her whole life. And if she knew that I was at the movie, she would pray earnestly that Jesus would not come back while I was in there because Jesus would never go in there to get me out. She got saved five times a day, and the reason she chose five times a day is she broke her waking hours. She broke her waking hours into three and a half hour spans, and every three and a half hours, she would have a moment where she would confess the sins of the last three and a half hours to God so that she wouldn't run the risk of forgetting any. This was a, this was a crazy sort of bondage system. It, it was a, I was messing with her on her 85th birthday. I said, listen, um, Granny, I'm taking you out for your birthday. I used to take her on a date. I'd take her on a date about once a week or so. Because she was by herself. Granddad had died. And I, I was, I was, so I, I worked for myself so I could organize things. So I'd take her out on a date in the middle of the day. And, um, you know, I'd take her into a nice restaurant. And I'd tell everybody, this is my date. And she's smiling. And, you know, and she's got her walker. And, you know, and she, you know she's in there. And, you, you, and, and, she, and so one time I said, Granny, after dinner, I'm taking you for a makeover. She said, what? I said, I'm serious. I've got it all set up. They're going to give you a nice haircut. They're going to spruce everything up. They've got you some jewelry organized. They've got you some, a nice outfit. She said, this is going to be fantastic, Granny. She, the fear of God came over. She said, no, 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 no. I, I, I can't do that. She said, I wouldn't want to send myself to hell. She said, maybe someone else too. I said, Granny, how are you going to send anybody to hell? She said, I'd hate to give a man a lustful thought. I was like, you're 85. Like, nothing's in the right place. Are you kidding me? Like, a lustful thought. So, so here's, here, here's, a, here's, someone, here's someone who, and if, being around my granny, being around my granny, granny was hypersensitive to, to people 
who who struggled with those things. Why? Because we preach our weakness. So I I grew up in that environment. And so somewhere deep down in my heart, somewhere deep down in my heart, if I mess up bad enough, when I lay my head down at night, I wonder if God likes me. I wonder. I, I struggle with that hard. So when you listen to my preaching, what does it focus on? It's a lot of grace and a lot of, wait a minute, Jesus is nice and a lot of this stuff. And, and I sort of go over the top with it. I sort of go over the top with it. Why? It's because of my own weakness and my own guilt. See? And so anytime, any, now, now is, is focusing on the grace of God a bad thing? No, if you're going to focus on anything, that's probably a pretty good thing to do. But, but everybody ministers, and every, this is my point, everybody ministers and everybody leads out of their weakness. So whatever you're feeling guilty about secretly, I promise you, is coming out in how you're leading. If anybody's paying attention, they can tell with what you're struggling with by how you lead. By how you lead. You cannot hide this stuff because it's coming out of your heart. Right? So guilt has the attitude of I owe you. Now, here are the consequences of that. The consequences of that is this. Number one, a culture of suspicion. A culture of suspicion. Everybody's wondering... Is someone out to get me? Is someone, is, is, is someone, what's their motive there? I mean, and, and this could take simple, this could be simple things. It, it, this is where, on a staff at a church, this will kill a church. This will kill an organization. If, if, if every time, if Steve, if Steve says, if Steve says to Dave, Dave, I, I'm going to go meet with, um, with, with such and so in the church. I'm going go, to have lunch with such and so in the church. And so Steve leaves, and then Dave calls a meeting with you three and you and says, now Steve's going out with this guy. Now, I wonder what he's trying to do. I wonder what his motives are. It, it, once we start assuming that Steve has improper motives, we destroy the unity in the organization. Now, now listen, this is so, if, if you phased out, listen here, this is so important. The Hebrew concept of unity is this word. Echad. That is a Hebrew word that means compound unity. Compound unity. It's a special word. To be, to, for, for something to be a homo, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so forgive me if I'm using wrong words here. For something to be a homogeneous sort of thing where it's, where it's one, that's one thing. But, but for something to be compound, in other words, it's got many parts, but it comes together as a whole. That's the idea of echad. It'd be like saying the, uh, the all-blacks played together as one, okay? you got however many people on a rugby team, and they're playing together as one. That's a hot. Now, this is so important. One of the three primary scriptures in the Torah that the Jews focus on is Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 is called the Shema. And it just says this. They would do this morning, noon, and night. Hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, Echad, Echad. So that the Lord is unity inside diversity. He is compound unity, okay? He's compound unity, all right? So unity inside diversity, all right? So, so God is Echad. We are made in the image of God, all right? So if God is unity and diversity, so are you. And everything about you is unity and diversity. Think about it. You're three in one, right? Your spirit, soul, body. And each individual part is its own individual part. At the same time, each individual part affects the others. If you get depressed, does it affect your physical body? Yes. You lose your appetite. 
you sleep more. This and that and the other, okay? So, so if, if you get sick in your physical body, does it affect your soul? Yes, absolutely. And then each individual part is a hot. For instance, how many parts are in your body? Thousands and thousands and thousands. And, and, if, and if only one part gets sick, it affects the whole body. For instance, have you ever had kidney stones? Anybody ever had kidney stones? You have. Did you go to work that day? You wimp? What's wrong with you? It's just your kidney. It's not about that big, right? It's just like that. You ever had pneumonia? Anybody have pneumonia? Did you go to work that day? What's wrong with you? The whole rest of your body's healthy. Just that one little part is filled with fluid, and you can't work? You wimp? Yeah, right? Like, like what's wrong? Well, why? Why is this? It's because your body is a hut. It's a lot of different parts, but they all affect one another. Your soul is a hut. Your soul and your body react to hot. The universe, the Bible says this, that God holds the universe together. God holds the universe together. Well, now, this is just transitive property. If God is a hod and God is holding the universe together, then a hod is one of the forces that holds the whole universe together. And this is true. Um, the, the relationship between ocean temperatures and climate. The, the, the relationship between when there's a guy... I can't think of his name, but he, 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 and he came up with and found what they called the butterfly effect. Do you guys know what the butterfly effect is? It wasn't just the movie. It was, um, the butterfly effect was a guy that was studying um, meteorological patterns. And, and what he did, he was at MIT, which is the top engineering school in, in America. He, he created an algorithm for wind patterns, and he was, he was playing with it on a computer program. Well, the, the story, the long and the short is, the, the story goes that, that he went into his algorithm one day, and he was in a hurry, and he left off the final three decimal points. Now, you've got to understand, his algorithm, let's say, I don't remember the actual number, but it was like something like this. Okay? So it's something like this. And when he got in a hurry, he left those three numbers off. But he just typed in that. And so he left, and he came back an hour later, and what he found was that the effect of those numbers being left off in the wind pattern had dramatic climate devastation a hundred miles away. So, so, and so they asked him, they said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, what it means is, he said, he said those numbers in terms of wind is the equivalency of, of the wind that is created by one puff of a butterfly's wings. He said, so, the logic goes, if a butterfly puffs his wings in the wrong direction at the wrong time, it can cause catastrophic effects 100 miles away in weather patterns. And so he coined it the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect. That's a hot. Do you realize how a hot the universe is when God has to keep his hands on the direction of the butterfly's wings? That's a hot. That is holding the universe together. If the world quit spinning on its axis properly, we'd all die very quickly. Like, these are all a hot ideas. Now, listen, a hot is the force that's holding the universe together. Unity and diversity is holding the universe together. Listen to me. When the universe faces on a hard breakdown, the universe starts to break down. When your body faces on a hard breakdown, your body gets sick and you get disease, this kind of thing. Listen, if the universe cannot handle a breakdown of a hard, this church doesn't stand a chance. You with me? When the universe 
Like, if, if, the, if the heart of the universe starts breaking down, you would have catastrophic effects. Catastrophic effects. And this organization, as good as it is, is nowhere near as strong as the universe. If the universe cannot handle a breakdown in a HUD, then this church won't stand a chance. The organization won't stand a chance. You have to create an environment that does not tolerate sabotaging a HUD. Listen, mistakes. Yes, as a leader, this is my philosophy. I'd let my leaders make as many mistakes as they could, like without destroying something. I would let them make as many mistakes as they could, as long as they were journeying with the right heart. I didn't care about their mistakes. But when they started sabotaging a HUD, that's when I'd cut their head off. Like, I, in my, in, I was on staff at some big churches, and, and, and the, only, the only people I can remember ever having to step down out of leadership. It wasn't for adultery or addiction or anything like that. When, when someone was messing up, uh, if someone messed up and they came to us and said, listen, I've messed up, we always helped them. That was no problem. But when we started hearing people talking about other people, when we started hearing slander and gossip and things that break down a HUD, no, nope, we can't tolerate that here. Well, my pastor that trained me, um, there, was, there was a lot of guys in leadership who messed up with pornography or messed up with whatever and, whatever, and he would always help them. He wouldn't expose it he, because they wanted help. He, he'd say, I'll help, as long as you want help, I'll help you and I will not expose you. And that's healthy. That's healthy. But man, when that guy got word that there was this group of people and they were down in this group of people and it was breaking down the unity of the organization, he would cut their head off. Why? Because the universe can't handle it. How much more can an organization not handle it? So, so, so this, is, this is the effect of having guilt in your heart, is a culture of suspicion. Number two, a culture characterized by professional courtesy rather than genuine community. Okay, let me say that again. When we're leading with guilt in our heart, it's a culture characterized by professional courtesy rather than genuine community. Number three, the consequences of having guilt in the heart. Very surface relationships because, because you're insecure about people knowing yeah. what's for real. So, so my question to you before we go any further in this is, is, do you have any secret things that you're dealing with that is affecting how you lead? Is there anything in your heart that only you know that's affecting how you lead? Is, is there anything where this guilt is, is entering into your, 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 uh, your, your leadership? All right, the, the next one is this. First one's guilt. Second one is anger. Anger. Anger has the underlying heart attitude. I owe me. No, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. You owe me. Sorry. You owe me. So guilt is I owe you. Uh, and that's unhealthy. Anger is, is, is you owe me. Now here's some traits of angry leaders. Angry leaders overreact to unmet expectations. Angry leaders are prone to fix blame on individuals rather than systems. So instead of looking at the system of the organization and how we can change that, we, we fix the blame on one particular person or this particular thing. Typically it's not true. Typically it's a system problem. 
angry leaders punish failure. And more often than not, someone with anger in their heart, they, they refuse to accept responsibility for their own failures. So here's the consequences of that. When that's going on in our heart, here's what it looks like in leadership. One, a culture of fear, where you're scared to mess up all the time. A culture of cover-up, so you, then you have a lot of secrets which produces more guilt. And then you've got a real mess. A culture of fear, a culture of cover-up, and then a culture where right, <laughs> listen, a culture where right is defined by what pleases the boss instead of what's the best for the organization. You don't ever want a culture that's defined by what pleases one man. You want a culture that's defined by what's best for the organization. All right, so the next one. First one is guilt, second one is anger, third one is greed. So guilt is I owe you, anger is you owe me, greed is I owe me. I owe me. Here's some traits of a guilty leader. And if you find this to be true about yourself, we're going to have to deal with this, okay? Greed. Here's some traits of a greedy leader, and if you if you found traits of this in yourself, we'll have to deal with it. And if there's any growling, Michael Handler. Okay, so <laughs> the greedy leader is reluctant to share the credit. A greedy leader is reluctant to share the credit. If there's something in you that you find it hard to share credit with somebody else, there's something in your heart that needs to be dealt with. And listen, that doesn't make you bad. It makes you normal. Okay? Everybody deals with this stuff. This doesn't make anybody bad. This is normal stuff that we all deal with. Number two, the greedy leader is reluctant to share the rewards of success. So they want to sort of hoard it to themselves. Number three, the greedy leader will change the rules in the middle of the game to suit them. Nothing's more frustrating than that in anything. Like, let's, even, let's take a marriage, for instance. A marriage, whether you realize it or not, starts out with a basic agreement between two people that has basic sort of tenets to it. Like, I will love you, you will respect me. It's a pretty good idea, right? I will love you, you'll respect me. And inside that has even more tenets to the basic agreement. Like, a pretty good, it's a pretty good rule, stated or unstated, that your husband should not come home and greet you with a punch in the mouth every day. Pretty good rule, right? Like, like if he did that, he would be breaking his basic agreement, right? Pretty, pretty good idea for you not to address him with obscenity-laced tirades. Probably pretty good, right? Right? So pretty good for the wife not to address him like that. Pretty good for the husband not to address him. And, and, and whether you stated it or not stated it, these things are understood agreements. Every, every relationship like that, that you have understood agreements where, about sexuality, you have understood agreements about, about how we're going to handle money. Like it's a pretty good idea for, for, for one, of, one of the two not to go out and borrow $50,000 without consulting the other person, right? Like this is a, this is a pretty good idea. Now in, in Hebrew culture, when you broke your basic agreement, when you broke your basic agreement, it was called marital unfaithfulness. Okay, marital unfaithfulness. 
So, so in, in, in a leadership culture, as in a relational culture, we have to keep our rules and our agreements consistent. It doesn't mean that we don't change our rules. It means that when we change the rules, there's a general agreement that that's the best way to do it. You don't change it in the middle of the game. Okay? Number, number four, the greedy leader will sacrifice the good of the organization for the sake of personal gain. All right? That's the heart. Now, here's the consequences of that. Here's, the, here's what the culture will look like if we don't deal with that. Number one, it's a culture where decisions are made with the good of the leader in mind rather than the good of the organization. Number two, if you want to know if there's some greed in our hearts in terms of, in terms of leadership, I'm not talking about in terms of money. That's a whole different one. I'm talking about in terms of leadership. If your culture ever becomes defined by turf wars, if the culture of your organization is ever defined by turf wars, somewhere there's greed in our hearts that needs to be dealt with. So if, if, if the children's guy is fighting with the youth guy, so if the children's guy is fighting with the teen guy, You've got, to have your, you've got a turf war. Now, in this church's situation, if the children's guy is fighting with the teen guy, it's a case of schizophrenia because it's the same guy. Okay? But, 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 but he's, like, he's fighting with himself. Okay, so... This is, this is my side of the budget. This, is, this part of the money should be to my department. So there's no sort of consideration to, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, what's best for the organization? That, that's any time your organization starts struggling with turf wars, there's greed in some people's hearts that needs to be dealt with. Needs to be dealt with. Now, number, number three, a culture of secrecy. Why? Why is there a culture of secrecy? Because I don't want you to know everything that is going on because I want the bigger piece of the pie. See, the guilt, the, the secrecy and guilt is this. I don't want you to know what I'm secretly dealing with. The secrecy and greed is, is I don't want you to know what I'm doing because ultimately I'll get a bigger piece of the pie that way. Yeah. It's a scarcity mentality as if there's not enough to go around. All right, the, the fourth type of, of, of problem here is jealousy. And I don't mean here, I mean in this talk, okay? I, I'm sure that all of us deal with this all the time. Jealousy. Jealousy has the underlying uh, thought that says, it's an entitlement thought. It's, uh, it's God owes me. I deserve something. Let, let me ask you a question. Do you ever get secretly offended when you're not noticed? Do you ever get secretly offended when you're not noticed? That's, that's a sign of jealousy in, in your heart. The jealous leader is quick to point out the failures of others. Why? Because they, they, think, they think they're entitled to the promotion. And, and, if, and if someone else doesn't get the promotion, then, then they will. They're quick to point out the failure uh, of others. Um, number two, the jealous leader is reluctant to facilitate someone else's success. They're reluctant to facilitate someone else's success. Although, the spiritual principle is this. Whatever you make happen for others, God makes happen for you. So actually, if you want God to bless your side of the ministry, the best thing for you to do is to partner with someone else in a different department and help them win. That's the, that's the spiritual principle. If you're a car salesman, the best thing you can do is help someone else sell cars. God will handle the rest for you. Um, number three, a jealous leader is threatened by talented or 
popular people in the organization. You see this a lot in transition. Like when an organization goes through transition and someone else comes in and their gifts are obvious, boy, the jealousy comes out. Listen, when, 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 when someone walks in and they're obviously more gifted in a certain area than you, if you've got jealous, that's where it challenges the jealousy in your heart. That's when it does that. When you have a transition of personnel, jealousy comes out. When you have a transition of authority, rebellion comes out. Why? Because someone who has rebellion in their heart, when the authority, once the authority structure is set, someone with rebellion in their heart will figure out a way to manipulate the system in order to get what they want. When you change the authority structure, now those same people have to come up with a new way. They have to start all over. And that's, that's bad. That's bad. Number four, the jealous leader measures success in terms of others' failures. So the variable in a jealous leader's thing of success is how is everybody else failing, not as how the organization winning. Now here are the consequences of that. A culture filled with negativity. Why? Yay. When there's, when there's turf wars and there's all of this stuff and there's, that you don't want anybody else to win because if they win it means you lose then it's filled with negativity because everybody's pointing out the problems of everybody else. Two, is the culture filled, I'm sorry, a culture filled with negativity. Number two, a culture void of leadership development. The reason you can't develop new leaders in that culture, in that environment, is because no one wants anybody else to win. And, and listen, I'm telling you something, someone with a real leadership gift will not tolerate being in an environment where it's impossible for them to win. They won't do it. They'll leave. They'll leave. Number three, it's a culture that does not recognize and celebrate high achievers. They don't recognize and celebrate high achievers. Okay, now, we talked about some of the, a lot of the negatives. Let's get to, uh, at least uh, one solution for each one, okay? So here's some solutions. Four habits of a healthy leader. Four habits of a healthy leader. These are four heart diseases. Let me give you four habits, okay? The cure for guilt. The cure for guilt is to confess. It, 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 within the realm of reason, uh, like let me let me tell you what I mean by that. There are certain pastors in this world that I would never tell them what I'm struggling with. Never, ever in a million years. Why? Because I'd look the next day and it would be on their internet blog. It would. And, and in their heart, they would think they were protecting the body of Christ. Which, in actu when in actuality, they're just jealous of the gift of God on my life and they're trying to bring me down. So there are certain people I would never tell my stuff to. And it is wisdom not to be an open book to everybody. However, if your organization can't be set up in such a way where the people in this room at least are safe, then your organization is going to suffer. Yeah. It, th th this organization, for it, for, it to be, for it to be the most effective, you ought to be able to be struggling with something and you share that with her and know that it's not going to go out there. Yeah. You've got to. You, you, the only way to be healthy as an organization is to be able to take things that are in darkness and put a big lamp on it. It's the only way to do it. It's to bring stuff out into the open so it can be dealt with. It's the only way to do it. And the only way to do that is to create an environment of safety. Like if you're struggling with drinking 17 shots of whiskey every night. And you look like that. 
you, you, I mean, you ought to be, if, if you want to deal with that, for this church to be healthy, if she wants to deal with that, she ought to be able to deal with that without fear of losing her job. She ought to be able to, to deal, she ought to be, she ought to be able to go to Mike and say, Mike, you don't know this about me, but I want to put a big lamp on something here. I struggle with alcohol. Like, and I'm not talking about I have a glass of wine at dinner. I'm talking about I have a bottle in an hour. Um, I'm talking, we got a massive, we got a massive problem here. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, depends on who you are. So, so but she, ought to, she ought to be able to say, this thing is controlling my life. I need help. And she needs to know that if she's that open and that honest, that she's in no fear of losing her job over it. And she's in no fear of it being talked about from the stage. And she's in no fear of it going through the whole church. She's in no fear of getting an email from a church member three days later that goes, I want you to know I'm praying for you with your issue. We have to have an environment where people can confess and put big lights on things in order to have help. Okay? We are, listen, we are hesitant. Listen, this is so important. We will all, all of us, will follow leaders who make mistakes. All of us will. Every person in this room, if you're healthy, will follow a leader who makes mistakes. But none of us in this room, well, let me say it this way. All of us in this room will follow leaders who make mistakes. But all of us in this room equally are reluctant to follow leaders who cover up their mistakes. We're all, we, we're all okay with making mistakes because why? Because we all make them. It's when there's a light on something, we're all okay with that. If there's a light on something, it's okay. But when someone's covering something up, that's when we're reluctant to follow people. Alright? So as long as there's a light. Right? Number, number two, the cure for anger is, 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 the cure for anger is not prayer. Listen, I believe in prayer. I do. But I could pray for you till Jesus comes back and you're still going to be angry. The, the cure for anger is not prayer. The cure for anger is forgiving people. Now, prayer might be the catalyst to get you to forgive somebody, but it's got to somehow end in you forgiving somebody. See, see the pe- listen, I'm, and I'm talking about this in terms of leadership. The people around you cannot grow without failing. You can't grow without failure. You can't help them grow if you're not willing to forgive them. There's an awesome story. A guy named Tom Watson Sr., he's the founder of IBM, okay? Uh, and and uh, in the middle of IBM's big growth, they hired a, uh, a new junior executive. And within three months, that junior executive made a decision, and he made a mistake. He made a huge mistake. And that huge mistake cost IBM $10 million, okay? So $10 million, this junior executive made a mistake. Tom Watson Sr., who is the founder of IBM, asked to meet with him the next day. And so the guy for sure thought he was going to be fired. So he walked in with his resignation letter and all this, and, and he was deeply apologetic and repentful and that kind of stuff. He said, it was a mistake. I'm sorry, Mr. Watson. I'll offer my resignation. I, I, I apologize to you. And, and Tom Watson Sr. said, man, I don't accept your resignation, nor was I calling you in here to fire you. I'm not going to fire a man that it just cost me $10 million to train. <laughs> That would be dumb. You don't fire someone that costs you $10 million to train. You forgive them, help them learn from it so that they can grow. Yeah. See, we, we, have to, we have to create a culture of forgiveness. We have to create a culture of forgiveness. To forgive, this is how you forgive. You must identify what has been taken from you and then cancel the debt. 
Rabbis, including Jesus, this is so important on forgiveness, rabbis, including Jesus, define forgiveness as canceling debt. Canceling debt. They do not define forgiveness as pretending like it didn't happen. They do not define forgiveness as forgetting. They do not define forgiveness as pretending it didn't hurt. You could actually, if someone hurts you, you could actually say, listen, you hurt me real bad. It did hurt. It did hurt. What you did was wrong. And it hurt me really bad. But here's what forgiveness is to Jesus. Forgiveness is, you don't owe me anymore. Whatever I feel like you owe me, you don't owe me. I have felt in the past like you owed me something because you took something from me. But from this point on, it's not that what you did wasn't wrong. It's not that what you did didn't hurt. It's just from this moment on, I cancel your debt. You, you don't owe me one more thing. You don't owe me one more thing. That is forgiveness. That's forgiveness. This is one of the scariest verses in Scripture is when Jesus said, um, he, he talks about this in Matthew 18, and you, you guys know the story, it's the guy that owed more than he could ever pay the king. Yeah. And, and so the king canceled his debt, and then the guy goes out, and he finds a guy that owes him 300 denarii or something, and he chokes him, and, and he has him put in prison until he could pay his debt back, and then word got back to the king, and the king then pulled him in and said, I forgave all that debt of yours, and, and, you, and you didn't forgive this guy for his small debt? Are you kidding me? And then it says, and then Jesus said, so the king hands him over to the torturers to be tortured until he could pay his debt back. And then it doesn't end there. Then, then this is scary. Jesus said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. <laughs> yai, yai, yai. Because right? here's the point of it. Here's the, here's the point. Is canceling debt frees you up. Like, most of the time when people hurt you, they couldn't pay you back even if they wanted to. Even if, in extreme cases, you really see this. Like, I had a 40-year-old woman um, come to see me in my counseling office. And her dad had sexually uh, messed with her her whole childhood. And then her dad at 74 years old, get saved. 74, gives his heart to the Lord. Comes to her and asks for forgiveness for what he did. And he said to her, I, 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 want, I wish I could give you your childhood back. He wanted desperately to pay her what he owed her, but could he? No way, he can't give her her childhood back. So he, he, even if he wanted to pay it, he couldn't pay it. So what's the best thing for her to do? cancel his debt. Why? Because if she holds, listen, if you hold a debt over somebody that they can't pay even if they want to, all that's going to do is torment you. Because they can't pay it. They absolutely can't pay it. It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. Listen, it's very important. The, 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 the story seems to indicate that one of the most important things about forgiveness is remembering what you've been forgiven from. It's very important never to lose sight of what God delivered you from. Very important. If you ever lose sight of what God delivered you from, you'll look down on people who haven't been delivered from that thing yet. I'll, I'll give you an example of this from my personal life. Um, I am, um, how can I say this? I am follically endowed. Okay? I'm hairy. Okay? So, um, <laughs> and, uh, I, 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 and look, I've tried to deal with this. I've confronted my mother on it. 
Okay. I, 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 yeah, no. I, I said, I said, mom. I said, mom, seriously, seriously. What was my dad? Not, not who. What? I mean, it, it, if, if, if I took my shirt off, it looks like I, it looks like my mom shot for men in a zoo. Okay. Like I was like, you know, mom. I mean, did you have a one night stand with an orangutan? I mean, what happened? I mean, what, what happened to me? Seriously. Because. Because my brother's not hairy and my dad's not hairy, and then and then and I've got this right, so I'm going, you know, and I missed it totally. When, when in in the late '80s, a hairy chest was cool, and, and and of course in the late '80s, I was in the sixth grade, so I, I didn't have a hairy chest, and then it got uncool, and then this happened, and then now by the time it's cool again, I'll be old and no one will care. But I, it's just weird. I, I just got a bad deck of cards with it. So anyway, so I was I was getting my hair cut one day, and I was wearing a t-shirt. And um, and I, and I don't I don't have a whole lot of hair on my back per se, but I had some you know at, at the at the top right here, and then at the bottom, at, at the bottom it looked like an upside down Christmas tree going into my pants. It was weird. So anyway, so 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 the the. So the girl, the the, the girl, uh, the, the girl that's cutting my hair, she's a friend of mine, and and um, and she she's cutting my hair, and she says, "Oh, Shane, please." I said, "What?" She said, "You are far too good looking to have this." I said, "What are you talking about?" She said, "There's hair on the top of your back coming up out of your shirt." <laughs> and I said, "That is not the top of my back. That's the bottom of my neck." And she said, no, it's the top of your back. I said, no, it's the bottom of your neck. Now, if you ever struggled with being hairy, you understand there's a huge difference between the bottom of your neck and the top of your back. She says, please let me take care of it. Please. It's, you, Shane, please. And I said, whatever. She said, I'll do it for free. I said, yeah, whatever. So I was expecting a this kind of thing. Next thing I know, I feel this warm sensation going across. <laughs> There's only one way to get it off. And so and so she rips it, and then I've got this bare spot. So she goes, oh, this is going to look stupid. Now I've got to do all of it. Right? So she does, she, does, she does the whole thing, including the Christmas tree, right? And for the first time since I was like 16, I felt the feeling of cotton on my back. Right? It was weird. So like three days later, I was going on vacation, so three days later, I'm sitting around by a pool, and I'm sitting there by the pool, and this guy walks by, this is only three days later, this guy walks by, and he walks by, and he gets by me, he's got hair on his back. And I went, that's disgusting. You ought to take care of that. Now, what happened? In three days, I had forgotten what I had been delivered from. And now, now once you go through that once, you've got to keep it up. So now I, just, I get it done all the time, right? So, so and, and, and on my back is hair-free, which is really quite nice. So, but, but, I, but always remember what God delivered me from. Listen, um, No, 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 I got it. <laughs> There's no Christmas tree there. <laughs> now listen. 
in your leadership, it's very important that on a regular basis, because you'll never arrive at this, on a regular basis, that you stop and become aware of this question. Where would my life be if God hadn't touched my life? Where would my life be? If you ever lose an awareness of where your life would be had God not touched your life, then you will, you will take away from other people their right to fail with a good heart. Now listen, you should never put up with someone purposely sabotaging a heart. And the reason is, is because your organization cannot handle it. It can't. But someone making honest mistakes, as good leaders, we have to give people the freedom to, to, to fail. That's the only way to grow people. Okay? Listen, th this is so important. This is, this is so important. Private grudges always result in corporate chaos. Anything you do in secret always manifests in public. Private grudges always result in corporate chaos. Um, Jesus said it this way about your prayer life. He says, when you pray, go to your father who is in secret and say this. My father, who is as close to me as the air that I'm breathing, hallowed be your name. Okay? All right. Later, in John 17, he said, Father, I have manifested your name. So what Jesus hallowed in secret, he manifested in public. Anything you hallow in secret, to hallow means to render, acknowledge, or become aware of. You, you, if you want to know what you're hallowing in secret, if you want to know what you're hallowing, period, ask yourself this question. When you're alone, where does your imagination go? The last three imaginary conversations you had, what was the topic, who was it with, and what happened? That's what you're hallowing in secret. Um, listen, we love imaginary conversations. We do. All of us love imaginary conversations. And the reason is, is because we never lose. Right? You never lose an imaginary conversation. If you lose an imaginary conversation, get your head checked. It's your imagination. You can win. Okay? Right? So if you lose an imaginary conversation, you've got different problems. You can always win an imaginary conversation. Always. But if you want to check the state of your heart, ask yourself this question. Your last three imaginary conversations, who were they with, what was the topic, and who won? Who won? And those are things that need to be dealt with. Private grudges always result in corporate chaos. What you hallow in secret, you'll manifest in public. If you, if you hallow in secret the fact that people don't like you, well, they're just not going to like me. If I got off that plane yesterday and thought, gee, I have a good relationship with this church, but this time's going to be different. They're not going to like me. Um, how ridiculous is that? If, if, if I ha but if I hallow that in secret, you realize I'll do something that will bring that out of you. And what you hallow in secret always manifests in public. If, if, if you hallow depression in secret, you will be depressed in public. If you hallow rejection in secret, you'll be rejected in public. If you hallow anger in secret, you'll be, re you'll, you'll be angry in public. Private grudges always resort in corporate chaos. Why? Because of HUD. Listen, if you can just be mad, if, you see, this is where the lie is. People say, well, my anger is between me and God. Listen, if that's true, fine. Do whatever you want to do. God can handle you. I'm serious. Do whatever you want to do that's between you and God. But the problem is, it's never between you and God. It's always between you and God and whoever's in your organization and, who, and in the broader reaches of the organization. You could actually sabotage, just like the butterfly effect, your anger 
your, your, your breath of anger in the wrong direction can have catastrophic effects far away from you. Always. Why? Because of the hot. So we have to deal with that. So the cure for guilt is to confess, put a big light on something. The cure for, for um, anger is to forgive. Number three, the cure for greed, that one's obvious, is give. Give. The cure for greed is writing a check. It's not prayer. I mean, it could, prayer can be the catalyst to it, but it better end in that. Generous giving, both strategic and spontaneous, breaks the power of greed in our life. Generous giving forces us to face some of the deepest fears we have as a leader, which is not having enough. Not having enough. Generosity is so important to God. I'm going to preach this at some point this weekend because it's so important. Developing, I, I will probably, I'll probably end the whole thing on Sunday night with developing a generous spirit because I want, I want to, I want to move. Listen, when you're preaching, there's a way you can preach because you have to, and some of us do that. All of us do that at times. But there's a way you can preach because you actually have something to say. And there's a way to preach because it's Sunday, but there's also a way that you're preaching to move people. I want to move people this week. And I want to move into... Let me just let me give you a taste real quick of this. This is, this is how important generosity is, okay? Here is the word righteous in Hebrew. That's the word righteous. Here is the word generous. It's the same exact word. This is the verb form of this. It means to reveal it. You put a ha on the end of any word, it means to reveal it. So righteousness revealed is generosity. There are 2,106 verses of scripture that talk about the righteousness responsibility to be generous. In Hebrew, it becomes obvious because it just says, Sadak people do sadaka. Like Psalm, Psalm 111, Psalm 112 verse 5. A righteous man deals generously. Out of all the adjectives that he could use to describe righteousness, he calls them generous. A righteous man deals generously. Listen, there's something that nourishes your soul when you do something for someone else without expecting anything in return. I'm telling you something, it does something to you. It does something to you. The, the rabbis called it, I don't want to preach the whole message because you'll hear it Sunday night. The rabbis called it this. The coot. The rabbi said that it is possible to know God even outside of the Torah if you're practicing the coot. That you know God when you give without any expectation of return. I may as well go where no man will go. I'll do it Sunday night, unless you tell me not to, but this is something the Lord showed me recently. You guys can handle this, right? Um, there's a scripture that always scared me to death. Always did. And it says this, Jesus talking. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. And I'll say, I never knew you. 
So Jesus seems to indicate that there's a lot of people at the end of the day who think they're in, but they're actually out. That's scary, right? Why? Why is that scary? Because you think you're in, right? So what's separating you from them? They've cried out, Lord, Lord, have you? So they argue. They say, hold on, you're mistaken. Remember us? We've cast out devils. We've um, we prophesied. That's us. Now here was my problem with that scripture. I could not find a separation point between me and them. Could you? Can you? What separates you from them? Have you cried out, Lord, Lord? Yes. Have you cast out devils? I have a couple times. Right? I mean, if it happens here, I'm just handing you off. Okay? But, uh, but I mean, I mean, I've done it a few times. Uh, have you ever prophesied? I have. So my problem with that scripture was, was what separates me from them? It scared me. It did. Just being interested about it. I've cried out, Lord, Lord. There, Jesus seems to indicate that there's a lot of people at the end of the day that think they're in, but they're actually out. And the people he's describing sound like Pentecostal leaders. So the question, I went to my, my Bible college professor. He's this doctorate in theology. I said, what do we do with this? This was his answer. It doesn't apply to you. That verse doesn't apply to you. I said, why? He said, because you're saved. That verse doesn't apply to saved people. It's talking about unsaved people. I said, well, dude, with all respect, they thought they were saved. And he goes, yeah, but it just doesn't apply to saved people. I said, man, that doesn't cut it. He said, it's going to have to cut it. It's the only answer I have. (laughs) The question becomes, it seems to me, I'm just giving you my journey, okay? It seems to me in that scripture that the central question is, what does it mean to know God? Then the question is, is there anywhere in scripture that God defines what it means to know him? Yeah. Right? Because we can make up anything we want. Yeah. And you know what? I was studying 15 years. I prayed prayers like this. Lord, if I'm in that category, please be nice enough to tell me. And then I found a answer. I, I was studying something else, and the Lord showed me a scripture where he actually defines what it means to know him. And then I started looking, and I can't find another scripture anywhere else in the whole Bible. It's in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 16. Jeremiah 22:16. This is what it says. I'll quote it directly because I've put it in my memory. This is what it says. This is God talking. He took care of the poor and the afflicted, so it will go well with him. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God. So God defines knowing him as having a generous spirit towards people who can do nothing in return. When you have, when you have a generous, and you think about how does, how well does that fit in with the rest of Jesus' teachings? Who is the only person in Jesus' whole ministry that Jesus said went to hell? The only person. There was only one in his whole three and a half years that Jesus actually proclaimed that guy went to hell. Who was it? Huh? The rich man overlooked the poor man. Jesus deals with everybody nice. Everybody. Woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, you'll be okay. Lady, divorced five times, shacked up with the sixth one. He's like, can I get you a drink? You look like you need a drink. Thieves on crosses. Okay. People throwing dice for his clothes. Father, forgive them too. Prostitutes, washing his feet with her hair. 
He says, oh, your faith has healed you. Your faith has forgiven you. But there was a rich man who overlooked a poor man. That's the guy that goes to hell. Who's the only person in Jesus' whole ministry that did something so horrible God killed him? The only one. It says that God blessed all the works of this guy's hand. And Jesus says, hey, there's a lot of hungry people out here. What are you going to do with all your spare food? And the guy goes, i got this great idea. I'm going to build bigger barns and store it up for myself. Jesus said, God's going to kill you. <laughs> Tonight, God's going to kill you, actually. Wow. Who's the only other people in the Bible that God killed, in the New Testament, that God killed? Ananias and Sapphira. What they do? They stole the offering to the poor. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Listen, the greed in our heart has to be taken care of. In the Bible, there's 2,106 scriptures that connect righteousness with generosity. That when someone journeys to a generous heart, that's when they know they're righteous. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says this. It says, I'm, give me some, some ability to paraphrase here. John, 1 John 3, 16 says, um, Let us not love in word only, but in word and in deed. So if any of you have material good, let him share with those who have material need. For it is in this generosity that we can know we belong to God. In other words, there's something in, a, in developing a generous heart that is equated in the scripture to righteousness. 2,106 scriptures say, talk about generosity and righteousness going together. There's almost an equal amount of scriptures that talk about wickedness and greed going together. Generosity, righteousness, greed, wickedness. Jesus said it this way, the outside of your cup and platter are clean, but the inside of you is full of greed and wickedness. He could have easily just said wickedness. Greed and wickedness, they go together. Okay, so we have to handle that part of us. All right? So, so the cure for, for greed is to give. Number number four, the cure for jealousy is to celebrate. The cure for jealousy is to celebrate. We need to go out of our way to celebrate publicly the things that threaten us privately. If we celebrate publicly the things that, 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 that threaten us privately, it breaks its hold on our life. I heard a guy talk about this um, in America. He pastors a huge church. And um, well, I, I don't mind telling you his name. Um, you guys have heard of Andy Stanley? Okay, it's Charles Stanley's son. Yeah. pastors a huge church. Have you guys heard of Louis Giglio? Yeah. Okay, see, you guys have more heard of Louis Giglio than Andy Stanley. Now, Andy Stanley was talking about this once, and he talked about how he had to get to a point where he dealt with something. Louis Giglio and Andy Stanley were friends from childhood. They are the two that got together and started North Point, which is now running well over 40,000 people, okay? So, on many different campuses. And so they got together and did this. Well, in, in that, Andy was the senior pastor and he was the speaker. Louis would share the pulpit with him. But what, what started to happen was Louis Giglio started a singles ministry on Tuesday night called 722. So this was on Tuesday night and it was for singles only. So you're really sort of limiting your, your base. Tuesday night, singles only, he was drawing 4,000 people. Okay, 4,000 people. Well, which Andy was fine with. Well, one night, all he heard was was how it was so packed, it was standing room only, it was this and the other. Well, one night, he had to cover for Louie. And so they announced, hey, this Tuesday, Andy Stanley is going to be at 722. You know, this, and so Andy gets there, and when he gets up to speak, this is after the music was over and everything, so everybody had time to get there. When he got up to speak, he said there was huge gaps in the auditorium. 
There was way less people there than were normally there. And he said something got in him about Louis Giglio's success. Something got in him. And he knew that if he didn't deal with it, he could lose his friend and it would damage his organization. So here's how he dealt with it. On a weekend service, he, got, he gave Louis the pulpit and he got up and publicly celebrated the success of Louis Giglio. And he said as he was doing it, it broke the hold of jealousy on his life. Mm. The cure for jealousy is to publicly celebrate things that privately threaten you. To publicly celebrate things that privately threaten you. Celebration will break the power of jealousy on your life. So my question to you is this. Is it who, and it will be different for everybody, who threatens you privately? In your private thoughts, who in this organization right now threaten you privately? And I want you to make a plan to celebrate them publicly. Celebrate them publicly. Even if it's in the form of an email, even if it's the form of a letter, even if it's the form of just talking him up, talking her up, whatever it is. I want you to go out of your way. If you want, this is not about right and wrong. This is about breaking the power of something over your life. Listen to me. This, this, is, this is my conclusion here. Listen to me. Four things that are true of you as a leader. Number one, you want, you want in your heart, you want to follow someone who is willing to acknowledge that he or her has failures. You want to follow someone who will acknowledge their failures. You also want to follow someone who won't hold your failures against you. So you want to follow someone who will acknowledge their failures. You want to follow someone who won't hold your failures against you. You want to follow someone who will share the credits and rewards of success with everybody. And you want to follow someone who will publicly celebrate your victories. So let me restate that. You want to follow someone who will acknowledge their failures. You want to follow someone who will let you fail and won't hold that against you. You want to follow someone who's willing to share the success of it with you. And you want to follow someone who will celebrate your victories in public. Now, if that's true about you wanting that, then, the bet, then wouldn't it stand to reason that other people want that as well? So if you want a leader like that, the best thing for you to do is to become a leader like that. One who acknowledges their failures, who lets other people fail, who's willing to share the rewards of success, and who celebrate people's victories publicly. When you share people's victories publicly and handle their failures privately, they will die for you. When you hand, listen, when, when you handle their victories publicly and you handle their failures privately, those people will be loyal to you to the grave. And that will create a healthy organization because it gets greed and guilt and anger and jealousy out of question and never, ever, ever tolerate a breakdown of a heart. You have to handle it quick. When your body breaks down a heart, you get sick. I got strep throat in, in South Africa. And, um, and do you realize that, I mean, I was traveling that day. I, I was starting to get sick the night before and then I had to travel the next day. Thank God that the worship leader at the next church was a physician. Because I just simply said to him, I'm really feeling bad. Like, I'm really feeling bad. He took one look at my throat and he went, oh. And I had to speak that night. He said, can you push through that? I said, yes. He said, well, after tonight, come to my house. I've got something. We've got to start you on something tonight or this is going to get bad. 
What's the point I'm making? The point is, is that if we turn a blind eye to a breakdown of a HOD, all it does is multiply the problem. When it comes to a HOD breakdown, you have to handle it quick, swift, with a razor knife. Okay? Well, um, that's what I had to share this morning. Um, Sorry I talked so long. That was that was over an hour. I apologize. Sir. But um, but that, that's what I had to share. So um, I'll just, uh, if you all want to discuss it or whatever, but I'll cut this off now.